a lot of a lot of what we do when we work with athletes is we're looking at their injury history. If I have a super fast athlete who has got lots of muscle pulls, non-contact muscle pulls, then I know that they're they're having an issue with stiffness. And I'm going to load them more slow than fast. I'm almost going to do no fast movement at all because they're going to get fast movement when they're doing their sport, when they're doing their training. So I can just do protective movements that are designed to keep them from getting those non-contact muscle pulls. If I've got somebody who's never had a non-contact muscle pull, who's maybe not quite as fast, now I can do a combination of lots of fast movements to try and improve their stiffness and improve their speed. Uh, not necessarily top end speed, but improve their stiffness. And then just enough slow movements to keep them healthy enough. That was UC Davis professor and connective tissue expert, Dr. Keith Barr, speaking on muscle stiffness, resistance training speeds, and athletic performance. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, Gym Aware, KBox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 156 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Thank you for being here today. And on the show, we have... Dr. Keith Barr, professor at UC Davis and renowned tendon training researcher and expert. Um, this is another gem in the line of tendon and connective tissue training uh, shows that we've had so far, the most recent of which was Dr. Ebony Rio. And I know that this is something that you guys are really interested in. I'm really interested in it. Interested in it. And who out there as, as a coach or a coach of athletes hasn't dealt with tendon and connective tissue injuries and issues and knees and Achilles and all these things. And I think this is stuff that's really important not to mention too. Um, and I've, I've, I've said this at seminars or this thought that like, you know, we tend to think of things from just a muscle perspective, but, um, you hear the term sprinting is electric and you see the research, the, the connective tissue is absolutely critical in being fast and explosive. It's what makes us athletes in many ways. And, and we can't, we can't have it without muscle, but, but to the tendons are critical. And so to that end, I'm, ex I'm really excited to have Dr. Keith Barr on this show. He received his PhD from the University of Illinois, and he is currently the head of the Functional Molecular, Molecular Biology Laboratory at UC Davis, where he leads a team of researchers doing some of the best and leading research in the world on tendons and connective tissue. 
So over the last 15 years, Keith has worked with elite athletes of many different sports, track and field, football, soccer, cycling. He has spent time as an assistant strength coach at his alma mater, University of uh, Michigan football team, where he spent time as an undergraduate. So Keith is a guy who is incredibly smart in the, the world of research, but also has experience in the trenches. And he really applies it and ports it over to things that are usable by everyday uh, strength coaches, sports performance specialists, track and field coaches, people who just want to jump higher and have healthier tendons. It's, uh, Dr. Barr does such an awesome job in this show and in his work of, of creating ideas that are very usable by us to get better output and health from our athletes. So I know that these shows have been really popular before on Connective Tissue. This is an amazing follow-up. It is incredibly information-dense. I would definitely recommend probably listening to it two or three times. And I know for me, I listened to it twice, one in recording it, one in going through it. And in going through it, there were so many quotes I wrote down that also really helped me capture um, some of the information that Dr. Barr was putting out. So if you're listening in your car or something, I would definitely take a look at some of the quotes from the show. I think you'd really get a lot out of it on JustFlySports.com on the actual webpage and show notes. But uh, for the show today, and a couple things as well, like you've heard uh, Sheldon Dunlap, who is a previous guest on the show, who really has an innovative version of triphasic training for athletic performance, mentioned uh, Dr. Barr's impact on him. Uh, Jake Tura, who's a strength coach at Youngstown State, who will be an upcoming guest, uh, is actually the most recent guy who got me interested again in what Dr. Barr was doing because he's had some amazing results from Dr. Barr's methods. And so today's show is all about tendon training. It's all about tendon health and regeneration, the dynamics of um, the collagen networks and the fast and slow exercise, isometrics, how that impacts the tendon, tendon stiffness versus length, basically training tendons for health versus performance, which if you're training athletes, it's a critical distinction. And it's uh, what Dr. Barr was mentioning in the teaser. We're also going to talk about how maximal overcoming isometric exercises work as well as extreme isometrics or long-hold isometrics and and uh, really how all these little tools in the isometric realm have an impact on tendons and muscles and how that adds up uh, in athletic performance. We're going to talk a little bit as well about nutrition and tendon health uh, and uh, and ideas there on optimizing our optimizing what we're getting out of that type of training. So again, this is just a fantastic show, super information, de- uh, super information dense, but Dr. Barr lays it all out just very eloquently in a way we all can understand, and I know you guys are going to get a lot out of this show. So with that being said, let's get on to episode 156 with Dr. Keith Barr. So Keith, what, uh, what stoked your interest in, in like tendon, tendons uh, and connective tissue and that whole uh, area of the sports performance and physiology spectrum? Because I think it's a little bit different. You know, muscles are, are one thing, but tendons are another, and, and what uh, lit your interest in that part of the field? Yeah, so there's two things really that that started me working in this area. The first one was that at the time, we were funded by the military to produce um, a motor. And the best type of motor that could not run out of energy is is a muscle-based motor. So we were actually engineering muscles with the design of of having a a muscle that could power, you know, devices on a spaceship that was going to do a long-term flight or it was designed for these really ambitious goals that you needed to have a motor that was had the potential to regenerate itself and it wouldn't run out of energy if it was given the right supply. So all of those types of things. And every time what we would do is we'd take our these beautiful little engineered muscles that we'd make, and we'd put them onto a machine and they would always fail at the interface between the muscle and the machine. 
And so that made it quite obvious that that's not the way it happens in the body. And you actually have an interface between the muscle and the machine, which is our skeleton. And so that we tried to then start understanding how this tissue, the tendon, it was actually working and, and what was really interesting about it. Because if you talk to any engineer, if you do what a muscle, what a tendon does, which is take a very compliant tissue in a muscle and attach it to a very stiff tissue in a bone, that's always going to be the point where there's the greatest, what we call strain concentrations or stress concentrations. And so that's where there's going to be the most chance for an injury. And so we, we did a number of different studies that were designed to understand how a healthy tendon works. And a lot of those studies, what we would do is we'd go into a rodent, we would take out a bone on one side and we'd take out the muscle on the other. We'd isolate up the, up the tendon and we did this with, um, with a tendon that goes along the front of your shin called the tibialis anterior tendon. And the reason we picked it is because it's nice and long. And what we could do is we could draw little lines on it. And that was really important because what we wanted to do is we wanted to not only pull on it and see how much load it took to stretch it, just measuring the distance between the two grips, but we actually wanted to look to see, is it the same at every point? So if I pull on it, if I look close to the tendon or close to, I should say close to the bone or close to the muscle, do I see differences in the stretchiness? And sure enough, what we found was that we looked close to the muscle, you had this really very compliant region in the tendon. And if you looked close to the bone, you had an extraordinarily stiff part of the tendon. And so really what we found was that the tendon was this graded mechanical tissue. And from that, we realized, okay, this is why our muscles are pulling off the machine because we don't have this graded interface between the muscle, which is compliant and the bone that's stiff and our bodies have created, or it, you know, we've evolved these systems where we have one tissue that's compliant on one end and stiff on the other. And that that was really important for um, our understanding of, of, of basically what these tissues were doing. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. That's actually the first question I was going to ask you is like this whole compliance and stiffness spectrum. Because mm -hmm. I remember in grad school, I did one of my first like actual my research first research class I took, which I didn't end up going there. I just I finished with my master's, but my first class there was uh, like a basic research compilation project and it was on tendon compliance and stiffness and I got an A on it but in hindsight I actually completely misdirected the research like I didn't do a very good job of <laughs> like I, I actually contacted one of the, it was Kubo one of the study authors later on mm. and asked him about the stiffness and compliance and training thing and he said basically the conclusions you made you can't make those uh, but I still got an A uh, which is sure. cool <laughs> yeah, no, it's very good and the, the, there's a really big difference between the beautiful work that Kubo has done and the work that we did in the rodent. And that's that when we do it in a rodent, what we're doing is we're taking out the tissue. We're holding on to the muscle on one end, the bone on the other end, and we're pulling directly on the tendon. And whenever we do these things in a human, we can't obviously do that. So what we have to do is we have to use something else to generate the force because here what we're doing is we're pulling on it. And every time we pull on it, we pull on it with the exact same load and the exact same velocity. And that's super, super important for understanding the mechanics of the tissue, because if you load it faster or slower, you're going to get different mechanics. And so when we do these studies in humans, what we're doing is we're using muscle contraction as a way to load the tendon. And that's great because you get a measure. The problem is that that assumes that nothing has changed within the muscle. 
So as I load my tendon, if I load my tendon today and then I train for eight weeks and I load my tendon in eight weeks, the trained muscle is also changed. And what's really important to realize is that trained muscle has a matrix within it. And that matrix within it is made up of collagen. And that matrix also is changing dramatically as you change the muscles functionality. And there's a beautiful study that just came out a few um, few months ago that shows that if we look in a muscle, we actually see that there's the muscle cells that are producing the force. And then there's the little satellite cells on the outside, which are the stem cells, which help us fix any, any injuries that we have. And there's also another population of cells. There were seven in total. But one of the new ones that they discovered was a, a population of cells that are actually cells that are tendon cells. And they're actually in the muscle, outside of the muscle fibers, and they're probably the cells that are producing the matrix within that muscle. And so the big thing that happens when we train or when we change all these loadings, we're not only changing what happens in the tendon, we're changing the matrix in the muscle, we're changing the, the muscle itself and its ability to transmit the force. So all of these things are changing and so the whole system together, we're changing the mechanics of it. And that's really important because when I test it, I pull it using a machine, holding the bone, holding the muscle, and I'm loading the tendon. That takes out any changes that happen in the muscle. But when we do these experiments in human, we have to use the muscle as a way to load the tissue. Yeah, it makes it fairly complex. I, I know the last uh, tendon podcast I did here with Dr. Ebony Rio and, and some of the work I was doing, reading her work in preparation for that, it was like Achilles tendonitis, you know, big, big issue. And doing like calf raise or basically strengthening the plantar flexors seems to have a benefit, but it doesn't, that's like, it has a benefit faster than the tendon can remodel. So where's this coming from? You know, you, you, and like, so if there's, it's a very dynamic system. It's not just the tendon. It's, it's, you have to look at all things. And I imagine that makes it, like you said, it can make it a lot harder to really pin down where these changes are coming from. And it's a, a lot more layered system than just one plus one. Right. And it goes back to things like it, it, like you just said, oh, it's happening faster than the tendon can remodel. A lot of that's actually from our, from this kind of feeling that we have or this information or, or maybe some of the older work where we know that, oh, well, tendon takes a long time to turn over. And there's this idea that a tendon is very slow in turning over. There's beautiful work from Katya Hennemeyer who showed that the core of the Achilles tendon doesn't change after you're older than 17 years old. But there's new work that's coming out. Um, and it hasn't come out yet, but it's, it's coming out from Luke Van Loon's laboratory in, in Holland. And he's probably one of the top two or three people in the world about um, protein turnover. And what he's doing is he's taking people who are getting total knee replacements and he's giving them deuterated water so he can label all the proteins that they make in the two weeks before their, their total knee replacement. They then cut off the top and bottom of the knee, they take that out, and his research team is taking that out and he's looking at bone college, he's looking at bone turnover, cartilage turnover, ligament turnover, and he's comparing it to muscle. And what he found is that the ACL ligament, so the, the anterior cruciate ligament, its turnover is the same as the quadriceps muscle. Wow. The posterior cruciate ligament actually had about 50% less turnover. So it's not loaded as much, but it's still turning over at a relatively fast rate. So even though we say, oh, these things are happening faster than a tendon can remodel, 
tenant remodeling is actually extremely fast. Um, you know, we've had some success with, with things where people were getting uh, MRIs six weeks apart and they're looking and they're saying, oh my God, what have you been doing? Because there have been these dramatic changes to your tendons. We know that just, you know, if you go out and you overdo it today, you're going to have a tendonitis. There are dramatic changes that can occur within these tissues in a very short period of time. Yeah, that's that's interesting to know. And actually, shoot, I'm going to have to um, hit you up and email you after we're done with this to hopefully get some of those studies to put in the show notes because I, I, it's just amazing to me how like fast like some of these things can like the research like can change and evolve. And it's like a new study comes out like like with the Achilles, right? If you know that. Before it's like, well, maybe the calf is taking part of the load, more of the load, you know, like the muscle is taking more of the load and that's why this is happening. You know, it's just, you don't know what you don't know. And um, I actually, I'm really glad you mentioned that study with Hennemeyer because I was actually just even, um, I, I mean, again, I sometimes we make assumptions, but this idea, and I've, I've heard it before, like if you're going to be an athlete, you really need to train your fascial system as a first priority. Cause like you said, at 17, like that's the max thickness. So it, it's kind of like if you spent too much of your time doing weight training and other stuff before age 17, as opposed to your, you know, elastic and speed and sprinting and jumping in your sport, you would, now you can't make up for it. Uh, yeah, but that's where we know now that that's not, that that's not entirely true. Um, and Katya's work is wonderful. Um, so what we think is potentially happening is the core isn't changing too much. It might remodel, it might reshape, it might have reorientation, but then what you're doing is you're changing things around the core. So you can make the tenon bigger, smaller, you can change all of those types of things. We have a, for that purpose, we have a really, um, we did a really nice case study on a professional basketball player. And what we, what we did is when the basketball player came into the NBA, went into the NBA combine, they, they do MRIs on both legs, on both knees. And he was found to have a hole in the middle of his patellar tendon on one of his knees. Um, and then we developed together with his training team and mostly driven by his training team, developed a program for them to, to really try and target that one area to try and fix it. And what we found is that just by doing our loading and nutrition program that over the 12 months following that first MRI, it completely went away. Hmm. So the central core of that patellar tendon, which had a hole in it, which was filled with water, and you could see it on the MRI as a white hole, that was completely filled in over the period of 12 months. We have people who've done that significantly shorter. What you also saw was that the size of the tendon close to the patella actually went down because the patella had been inflamed. And so when you got out the core problem and you, you fixed it, the actual core of the tendon or the tendon close to the patella where the injury was, was actually smaller. But if you looked at the mid substance, so if you went halfway down the patellar tendon, it actually gotten thicker. So over the 12 months and he played, you know, 50 NBA games, as well as the training we were doing, we had already changed his patellar tendon diameter quite significantly, decreasing it at the top, increasing it where you would hope to have a bigger, stronger tendon. So we know that we can do these things. We know that these things happen. That period of time, the 12 months, was simply because you don't want to put somebody into an MRI all the time. We have people who have um, who I've worked with who basically within six weeks, they've already seen that kind of a change. And so these, these transitions are happening really quickly. 
And, and you're getting to the point where you can actually reshape these tissues relatively robustly. Hmm, that's, that's interesting to me. So based off that, then what is, uh, what would you say is the relevance of, of Hennemeyer's research in, in light of that? Like you had said like, it's basically like the shape is set or so it's, it's somewhat set at it's like 17. A, it's like a tree. So you, the first few years, those are the internal rings and you're building in the outside of the rings, the other rings that you're adding on as you make that tree bigger and stronger as it ages. Those are the things that you can are more dynamic. Those, that part of the tissue is more dynamic. The center core part of it maybe isn't as dynamic unless you have an injury. So these were all relatively sedentary people. They, they were, well, no. For Americans, they were massively active because they were from Denmark. So they were always, they were always active. They were going around on their bikes. They were doing all these things. The interesting thing about the study is that there were, all, there were a few people who weren't on the line at all. They were really, really low. And so what's entirely possible is those people had a serious Achilles tendon injury and they actually had to go through regeneration and you didn't see the same pattern with those people. So if you're going through normal life, you're not competing at a very high level, you're never getting damaged to the area, there's no reason for us to turn that over because the collagen is still functional. But if you're, if you're loading, if you've got lots of you know, good nutrition that's supporting the system, you're going to have higher rates of turnover and the rates of turnover are going to be high enough so that you're going to actually see dynamics to the, to the size and, and the functionality of the tendons. I see. So in a way, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but like, so it has an impact on it. So the, the function up until then does have an impact, but it's not like the determining factor. Like it's like a core, it's like a part of it, but it's, it's a big influence, but it's not gonna, you can obviously still have plastic changes outside of that. Exactly. So a lot of, so I think part of the reason that you might've been thinking of that is it is really hard to change speed, top end speed as you get mm -hmm. past 13, 14 years of age. And so is that potentially because we've already set tendons and so our stiffness is set? We know that that's not true at all. Um, one of the ways that we know that is that um, I get the opportunity as part of some of the work that I've done with uh, the USA track and field team is I've had the opportunity to talk to a number of incredible coaches. And one of them, John Smith, who's a, who's a world-class sprint coach. He, he told me this great story that he can always tell just by listening, whether his female athletes, whenever his female athletes have gone out and wore high heels to a special event, because just, three, four hours walking around in the high heels is enough so that when he hears them contact the track, he can actually hear a difference in their, in hmm. how quickly they're, they're contacting the track. So we can, these things are extremely dynamic as far as the stiffness, as far as we can play with that quite dynamically. We can change that within a period of days, really. Yeah, I think it's awesome how like that neural imprint can carry over based off of, yeah, like the footwear and then you, you get out of that and you're on the track, but you still can hear it uh, even in different shoes. And it's it's really cool how the nervous well, system. And in there, it wouldn't necessarily be the neural component because if I shorten your tendon, I can make it so that with the same neural input, we can change the stiffness of the system just because um, – until you've done enough, I can change the, the cross links within the, the collagen 
and that'll stiffen it up into that position a little bit. So if you put yourself into a cast for a few days and you get yourself out of the cast, it's really stiff and sore. If we wake up in the morning, we're feeling like, oh my God, really stiff. After a few steps, you're going to break down what you've done in that, in that, in the time when you've been sleeping. But if you're constricting your muscle and your tendon into a shorter position for a while, and you're walking around, you're using it normally, you're actually going to develop crosslinks. You're going to develop changes within the tissue that then you need to mitigate in some way, or you're going to see consequences of that. Some of the consequences are good, like you're going to be maybe a step faster, a little half step faster, core step faster. Some of them are potentially bad. Like there's a potential for a greater risk of injury. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that, Keith. I, cause, so basically you're saying that like the, the effect of the heels is more like the compression of the the mechanical compression of the foot more than the nervous system, like being in a mode by being on the, the toe. Like you're, if you're compressing like kind of like a cast, if you will, that ports over for the next day. Yeah. So it's just that you've got, you've got this, um, it's not a compression really. It's just a shortening of the, of the Achilles. Oh yeah. That too. Obviously. Yeah. That too. Yeah. So it's just a shortening of the Achilles. The Achilles is now shortened. So at the same muscle tension, you've got a shorter Achilles and that's going to then, if you do that long enough, that's going to change the mechanics of the muscle tendon unit. Oh, uh, gotcha. So you go back and you have to go through a full range of motion. It's not going to have the same compliance and stiffness that you would be used to from from everything else you've done. Cool, perfect. That yeah, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense now. Uh, and so speaking of that, like the the tissue lengths and all these things. So the first and we've alluded to it, or you've alluded to it as you've you've talked already. But I think there's this big thing between. Uh, tendon stiffness and compliance and you were already talking about how closer to the bone it can be one type of thing and closer to the muscle it's another um, but is there really like a general setting like like this tendon this tendon will generally get stiffer generally get more compliant by this type of training and is that something that will shake that out for health or performance how does that mm-hmm. matter in the context of training and performance and what changes we can make yeah, so, so it's a great question. So it goes to the basis of what is, so the, the biggest question there is, is what is the, how do you change the stiffness of a tissue? So, so stiffness in these tissues is determined by um, the collagen content and orientation. So how much collagen is there and how it's oriented. So that's a really, really important component because if I have more collagen, I, can ha- I have the potential to have more stiffness but I don't always get more stiffness because that's only one component of it. So I've got my collagen content on one side. And then what you have is you have the collagen molecules. They're these beautiful spiraled molecules that are, are brought together in a really regular pattern. And they're a regular pattern. They're, there's overlap between the fibrils. And then those fibrils are cross-linked. And so that means that they're connected together by an enzyme which connects two amino acids between the two collagen molecules. And that provides the kind of stiff, that just provides the attachment between them. And then they're organized into these structures. And as you get up to the, the fibers and then the, the, you get fascicles. And then the fascicles are actually can slide relative to each other as well. And those are linked together by cross links and by other, by other things that are, are, we're just starting to begin to understand. And so 
what we know is that as you have more crosslinks, you get more stiff collagen. So you can have the same amount of collagen protein. If I crosslink it more, I've just made it stiffer. So now we've got two ways we can control this. The Heinemeyer study only looked at the collagen content. So it's only looking at collagen. So is the collagen there the same collagen that used to be there months or years or, or decades ago? What you're not seeing is you're not seeing the crosslink component. And the crosslink component is something that we change dramatically with our activity and also by what we eat and how much enzyme activity that we have. Okay, so, so the, the main enzyme for cross-linking the collagen is an enzyme called lysyl oxidase. And so that enzyme is really, really important. Um, it's a copper-containing enzyme, and it uses, um, well, and that's one of the first components of it. There's a second enzyme that's really important called proleal hydroxylase. That one's really important, and that one is the one that we need vitamin C for because that one is important not for cross-linking the collagen, it does cross-link a little bit, but what's most important for is actually making collagen. So if you don't have proleal, proleal hydroxylase and vitamin C, you don't make and export collagen. Okay, so that's where that comes in. So that's making collagen. And then what you have is you have this enzyme lysyl oxidase, which cross-links it together. And the more lysyl oxidase you have, the more cross-links you get, the stiffer the tissue you have. Right, so what we do when we exercise, any type of exercise we do, we're going to increase the amount of lysyl oxidase that we have. So that's the enzyme that's going to add in crosslinks. Okay, so if we're just doing exercise and we're doing regular exercise, you have this potential to increase lysyl oxidase and accumulate more and more crosslinks. The other side of it, though, is that when we're doing our activities, we have the capacity to break down our crosslinks. And the way that it works is that as our muscles contract, as we talked about earlier, when I said that if we pull on a tendon fast, it's stiffer. And when we pull on a tendon less fast, it's less stiff. If I load my tendon quickly, my collagen, all the collagen in my tendon works as a sheet and it just pulls with the muscle. There's no shear forces. There's nothing else really going. It's just working as one unified grouping. When that happens, we don't break down any crosslinks. We've done exercise. Lysyl oxidase has gone up, so we're adding crosslinks in. So when we do really fast exercise, we don't break crosslinks. We're adding more crosslinks. We're getting stiffer. If instead I do the exact same exercise, but I do it slower, or I do it in an isometric way, now what I get is I get... The collagen within my tendon, the fascicles or the collagen molecules start sliding relative to each other. Because as anybody remembers who's done a wall sit where you sit it on a wall and you put your knees at 90 degree angle and your hips at 90 degree angle, it starts to burn after a while. And the reason it starts to burn is because the tendon is starting to relax. And as the tendon is relaxing, what we're getting is we're getting sliding. Things aren't sliding equally. The muscle is pulling really hard, the tendon is kind of sliding, and you're getting this call, this property of viscoelasticity called creep, which it creeps down slowly and it becomes you know, longer over time. When that happens, we get this sliding, the sliding breaks crosslinks, and so now what we've done is we've broken crosslinks, then we're gonna get lysyl oxidase to add some back, but if we've done it right, and this is our goal, what we've done is we've broken more than we've re resynthesized, 
And the result is that we've decreased crosslinks. And remember, crosslinks cause the collagen to be stiffer. So by doing a slow movement, we've made it less stiff in the tendon, in the, in the collagen in the tendon. And in a fast movement, we haven't broken crosslinks. We've increased crosslinks, so we've made it stiffer. So in the tendon, if we load fast, we get a stiffer tendon. And if we load slowly, we get a less stiff tendon. Okay, I got you. I, I actually have a, I have a good follow up off that for you. But before I get to that, I actually I had a question with the wall sit and and because I'd never heard this before that the burning came from the tendon action. I think it doesn't you know, come from the tendon. It comes from the muscle contracting. Oh, okay, I got gotcha. you. The tendon continues <laughs> to relax, so the muscle has to keep keep working and working and working. I got gotcha. you. As the tendons relaxing, it has to work more and more and more. I, yeah, because I was like, yeah, it's just the lack, you know, the pH of the muscle. I was like, I'm like, is there something I'm, uh, you know, I'm missing here? Well, it's so. not the pH of the muscle either. It's just that it's having to continuously work, and you're actually, you know, you're generating a bunch of, yeah, byproducts. pH is one of them, a one of many different things mm -hmm. that are being generated. But so all of those different things are going into kind of this feeling that this burning feeling there. Um, but it, the reason it's burning is because, you know, if you're just sitting there doing an isometric contraction, you can hold it for a long time. But as you're doing the isometric contraction, if your tendon is continuing to lengthen, your muscle has to continue to shorten. So mm -hmm. there's not really an isometric in that way. So you're still having to shorten. You're still having to have all of these cross bridges moving. And so you're not actually just holding it isometrically. Cool. Yeah, that, that makes good sense too. And so, yeah, because if your muscle just was just like locked out and wasn't doing anything, it wouldn't get as tired. Like it's just hanging out there. You can do that when you're dead. That's yeah. rigor mortis. Right? <laughs> so even isometric contraction is not very metabolically costly if you can do it when you're dead. So, so that's, again, it's, but it's not a true isometric. Yeah. That's because the muscle is continuing to shorten as the, as the tendon length. That's why yeah, it, it, the, some isometrics have actually been labeled extreme slows because it's, it's yeah. technically an extreme slow. The muscle is extremely slowly lengthening to deal with or contracting to deal with the lengthening. Exactly. And that's what we say. So I just, we just said the fast movements cause it to be stiffer. Slow movements cause it to be less stiff. The slowest movement is an isometric. Still a movement because you're still getting a shortening. That's why that tends to have the greatest positive effect for the health of the tendon. Cool. Yeah, and that makes sense. I've heard so many anecdotes on on that iso lunge, iso wall sit uh, being, and, and I'd like to get more into protocols here as we go throughout this. Uh, one question I have, right, right, based off that, is it kind of like a? I mean, I think of it see, like a, like training, right? Like maybe you started a program with some long isometric holds, and then you go later on to some fast, like some depth jumps or loading, like. With that, is it, I mean, are you kind of, is there a counteracting effect or because you're breaking crosslinks and creating like this longer system, is that create more potential later on for when you do load more quickly and create the sheet? Like, cause kind of slow set up for long basically is my question. Yeah. So, so it's a good question. Basically what you're looking at when you do these types of things is you're looking at um, a lot of, a lot of what we do when we work with athletes is we're looking at their injury history. If I have a super fast athlete who has got lots of muscle pulls, non-contact muscle pulls, then I know that they're, they're having an issue with stiffness. And I'm going to load them more slow than fast. I'm almost going to do no fast movement at all because they're going to get fast movement when they're doing their sport, when they're doing their training. 
So I can just do protective movements that are designed to keep them from getting those non-contact muscle pulls. If I've got somebody who's never had a non-contact muscle pull, who's maybe not quite as fast, now I can do a combination of lots of fast movements to try and improve their stiffness and improve their speed. Uh, not necessarily top-end speed, but improve their stiffness. And then just enough slow movements to keep them healthy enough. And remember, we've only really talked about the tendon so far. So if I'm doing a, a plyometric load or an isometric load or any of these loads, I'm not only affecting the tendon, I'm also affecting the muscle. And there's beautiful work, early work from, from Laurent, where they showed that, look, one of the things that happens in a muscle when I give it a really big load is I get a huge increase in collagen. And I'm getting an increase in collagen synthesis and a decrease in collagen degradation. So the matrix around the muscle is actually becoming more collagen rich. And that matrix is now going to be stiffer and stronger here. So even if I'm doing an isometric in my tendon, I'm loading my muscle. My muscle is still has to prevent the shear forces that we want in the tendon. The way that it does it is improves the connection between the fibers. One of the things that it does to do that is it increases collagen content, some of the other force transfer proteins. And now what you've got is you've got a muscle that's better able to deal with the loading. And you've got a tendon that's now less stiff, muscle that's probably more stiff. And now the combination gives you maybe not a dramatic change in the overall stiffness of the system, but it's got a very big effect on, on injury prevention. Because now we've made our muscle a little bit um, tougher, essentially, and our tendon a little bit less stiff along the muscle end, so it's more protective of the muscle. The result is that you're going to see a, a significant decrease in, in non-contact muscle pulls. Cool. And, and back to that, Keith, back to that player you are saying who comes in and has a lot of muscle pulls and they have a stiffness issue, and you're saying you, you're giving them slow work. Does that mean their, their tendons are too stiff and, and you're trying to kind of be allow that tendon to break down and pull more or yeah, elongate more essentially essentially so so one of the biggest things that we we see in tons and tons of athletes across different sports the faster a person is the more muscle pulls they get and one of the things that we also see is that we women get 85 percent fewer hamstring pulls and groin pulls than men do hmm. And again, one of the things we know about women is that estrogen, we've shown in our laboratory using our engineered ligaments, estrogen directly inhibits the enzyme lysyl oxidase, which is the cross-linking enzyme. So the women, what that means is that their tendons are less stiff. Performance is a little bit lower as a result, their power-based performance, but they get fewer muscle pulls. So that's great. Problem is that's the same collagen that's in their knee. And so now what they've got is they've got four plus fold more ACL ruptures because the same enzyme that's being inhibited in the tendon and protecting the muscle from pulling is the same enzyme that's going to make the ligament less stiff and more lax going to result in more ACL ruptures. So, so you've, we understand this, this information's out there. It's just a matter of making sure that people are, putting it together in a way that you can now structure something that's going to be a little bit more useful in how you would put something together for an athlete. Because really what you're trying to do for the men is you're trying to decrease muscle pulls 
but you know that the ligaments are going to be quite, and that knee is going to be quite, quite um, stiff. You're not going to have too much laxity in the knee because again, they don't have the same hormonal situation. As a result, more cross-linking in the, in a ligament, the more cross-linking, the better because a tighter joint means fewer injuries. If you have a 1.3 millimeter increase in laxity in the knee, you have a four to six fold greater likelihood of an ACL rupture. So for ligaments, I want them to be as tight as possible. For a muscle, if my, if my tendon is stiffer than my muscle is strong, I'm gonna, instead of the tendon stretching when I hit the ground, the muscle is gonna have to stretch when I hit the ground. And uh, that's a high force lengthening contraction. And that's when we get those, these muscles. Ah, I gotcha. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way at all, but that, that makes perfect sense. I, I was going to say too, with the women, I'd never heard that before, but it's like working in track, I should have known that, you know, like I, it actually kind of caught me by surprise a little bit, but now that you say, it, I'm like, you know, wow, I think, you know, you're definitely right. Um, yeah. but that's what they say in track. It's like, they'll, they'll say, well, strength train women deeper in the season than men, like, because they need it. And to me, it's like almost they need it to keep the stiffness higher relative to men who don't need that as much later, just from a pure performance stiffness standpoint. Like that would make sense, right? And then um, I was going to ask you too about uh, like, so you, we've talked about isometrics and slow isometrics as, as used for um, creating like a longer, like more compliant tendon. But so to make a stiffer tendon, I mean, I'm assuming that's just heavy weightlifting or rapid heavy weightlifting or plyometrics. Is there anything that's kind of... Um, yeah, so So it's... So we know from force velocity relationship that the heavier I go, the slower I go. And what I, what we talked about is that if I want to get faster, if I want to increase stiffness, I need to have a fast movement. And so there's beautiful data out there that shows that, look, the biggest performance benefit um, is max power work is better than plyometrics. It's this zero to 30% of your one rep max as fast as you can move it. And that's where we see the biggest effect because again, the velocity is the key thing. So when I'm strength training, when I'm talking to strength coaches, I try and make them understand that normally what a strength coach does, is they look at what they control. They control, they control the volume, they control the load, and they control the frequency. So those are the things they're doing. How many times a week? How much are you lifting? And and really those are the those and then how how many sets are you doing? So when we're looking at, at performance-based work, if you're looking to increase stiffness, you increase performance, what you want to do is you need to, we're actually not, we're not programming any of those things. We're using those things as a tool to actually control the thing that we're most interested in programming, which is velocity. So if I'm going to do a lift, I'm going to use a weight that's going to either make me go slowly because it's a heavy weight, and that's going to protect my tendons from in, and muscles from injury. Or I'm going to use a, a low weight and I'm going to move it as fast as I can. And the result is that going to be that now what I'm going to do is I'm going to get this high velocity movement. That high velocity movement is now going to increase the stiffness, which is going to increase performance. It's going to potentially put somebody at more of a risk for injury. So what we're really doing when we're programming as a strength coach is we're programming velocity and that's the key component. So when you're programming velocity, you don't do as many repetitions in a set and you don't do as many sets because you can't maintain the velocity as, as, as well if you do lots and lots of repetitions. Yeah, it's good stuff. I, I and 
it's good to have that in the memory banks. And then as well as too, I wanted to ask you, this was, um, a common exercise in track and field. That's because it's becoming more common. And I, the original guy in this podcast, Alex Natera, who pioneered it. And then other people, uh, colleagues of mine who are using it are getting the same results of improved top end speed in track and field athletes. And that's like a, a maximal isometric push where you're, uh, basically you're in a Smith machine, the bars on your back and your foot is on a block, your toe is on it, your heels free. And your leg is about at the angle that it would be as your foot passes under you in sprinting. And it's just a short push as hard as you can into the the pin. So like an overcoming isometric. And right. based off what we've said, like I'm curious what effect that has. You've talked a little bit on the muscle tendon interaction. I'm, I'm kind of curious how that hits that stiffness um, yeah, paradigm. So the, the key thing with isometrics is that there's the overcoming isometrics. There's the holding isometrics. There's, there's the resisting isometrics. The key thing with isometrics is less so whether we're developing, whether we're holding, whether we're resisting, and much more so about how long we're holding for. So in the, in the type of work that you're talking about where you're trying to develop speed, you're just going to do an isometric, but it's going to last really, really short. It's the snap of a finger. You're just going to push up as hard as you can. You're going to hold it for a second, less than a second. You're going to come back down. When I talk an isometric for a health-based movement, I'm talking about a 30-second hold. Again, the reason is, is based on the mechanics of the tissue. What happens in what you're talking about where you're doing a very short push, it's not an isometric in the sense that, yes, the length of the joint doesn't change. So technically, it's an isometric. But just like we talked about when you do a, a wall sit and the muscle is shortening even though you're holding it for 30 seconds, in, your, in the accelerator, basically what you're doing is you're accelerating and the muscle is taking up all the slack in the system. You're pushing up as hard as you can and then you're letting go. That whole thing, the muscle and the tendon unit are shortening that whole time. And so the design there is to stiffen the muscle tendon unit as a, as a unit when you're doing that. When I'm talking about for a healthy movement, for, for health or repair of an injured tendon, what we do is we use a very long isometric hold. The reason we do that is because of that property that we talked about earlier, which was that viscoelastic creep. Creep in a tendon means if I pull it and I hold it at a certain length, and I measure the tension between the two ends of the tendon, and I hold it there over time, what I'll see is that the tension goes up really high when I pull it, and then it goes through this relaxation. And it's an exponential relaxation. And the relaxation kind of gets to the bottom where the tension is as low as possible around 30 seconds. So it's about 45% of the tension within the tendon is released in the first 30 seconds. If I go out to 180 seconds, it only releases maybe 5% more of the tension. That's why when you go and you... I know I'm sure none of your podcast listeners do it anymore, but you hold a, a long static stretch. You go and you reach for your toe. You hold it for 30 seconds, 20, 30 seconds, and then you reach again, and now you can go further. All you've done is you've done the creep, and then you've taken advantage of, oh, there's less tension there, so now I'm going to pull on it again. And I can let my muscle tendon unit together can stretch further. All you've done is relax the tendon and you've gotten this creep. 
when we're talking about a healthy move where we're going to get sliding of the collagen molecules, we need to get into that zone where we're getting creep. When you're talking about a performance movement, technically isometric because the joint's not moving, the muscle is certainly not isometric at that time. The muscle is shortening as quickly and as hard as it can, which is exactly what it does when you hit the ground when you're running full speed. Your muscle contracts isometrically. Beautiful work from, from Tom Roberts has shown that when you're running, the muscle contracts isometrically, the tendon stretches and recoils, at least the calf muscle, some of the other muscles as well. But that's really what you're modeling when you do the really quick Smith machine accelerated push. Yeah, it's an isometric because the joint doesn't move, but the muscle's not isometric. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Gotcha. Th- yeah, that makes perfect sense. Like, imagine like the it's almost like the you have a rubber band and the muscle is like your hand pulling the rubber band up when inside the the body you can't see it, but when yet yeah, you go nowhere. But it, that, you, like you said, it's the same thing. It happens in running. You're basically just using that mode to teach the system to create tension faster as a whole uh, rapidly create the isometric so you can store energy within your tendon yeah cool uh, well well we're up that's uh, that's awesome stuff by the way thanks for um putting that out there and you mentioned stretching too because so i wanted to get into that a little bit with static stretching because it is it is still people do still talk about it and, and i i've heard like it is it's almost more the tendon than it is the muscle or it is like you said it is more the tendon than the muscle like, could you go into that a little bit? And then uh, one of the things I was, I've been curious about specifically is like the Achilles. Like if you were to like stretch the Achilles a lot, is that going to, the tendon and the creep going to like have a long-term effect on feedback loops? Like, I, I hope I didn't convolute the question, but I'm just kind of curious with stretching and so performance good. and all that. No, you, you hit a bunch of things there. So, so basically the idea behind a static stretch is that um, people say, if you ask them why they statically stretch, it's all oh, to decrease injuries. Well, there's a beautiful meta-analysis that shows that if you do static stretching, it has no effect on injury rate. If you do heavy strength training, it decreases injury rate by two-thirds. The heavy strength training, again, velocity is low. You're getting the low, slow movements Mm -hmm. that are going to be protected. The stretching isn't doing that. Um, And part of it is because of what you said at the end, this idea of feedback loops. So... I always use the example of, um, of NCAA gymnastics because the women in NCAA gymnastics, probably some of the most flexible women in sports at the college level. So if you look at these women, they do a lot of static stretching, a lot of static stretching on the calf. And last year they had 17 women who ruptured their Achilles tendon. Yeah. So if stretching is really going to be really beneficial for explosive performance, that's the, the group that stretches more than anybody else. And yet here they are rupturing the Achilles. What we think is happening is when you're stretching, in order to get in that position, it's not that the tendon and muscle are actually changing too much. The mechanics of the tendon muscle interface don't seem to change. What seems to happen is there seems to be an override between the brain and the spinal reflex that is normally designed through the Golgi tendon organs and the muscle spindles, where you can rapidly respond to changes in the muscle and tendon length. When we stretch, what we're doing is we're overriding the reflex to say, oh no, this is normal. And so we're getting less of the reflex arc. So we're getting less energy through the reflex arc. So when we hit the ground following an explosive movement, 
we don't turn on the reflexes as quickly, the result is that we don't protect the tendon the way that it needs to be protected by co-contracture of these muscle muscles that are going to stabilize the joint and that's going to stabilize the joint and pretend, protect from injury. Well, if you, if you have this kind of chronic override on the, on these reflexes, what seems to happen is you become more prone to getting those injuries because you're not getting the co-contraction to stabilize the joint at the exact moment that you need to, because the reflex is not as quick. So we don't tend to use the static type stretching simply because what you're doing with the static stretch is you're overriding the, the muscle spindles and the Golgi tendon organs. You're not getting the shear force that we get from a contraction. When we hold a contraction, you're going to get more sliding because the muscle is contracting. And when the muscle's contracting, we're going to get different signals from the muscle spindles and from the Golgi tendon organs. And so what that means is when we use a muscle contraction to get this type of stretch on the tendon, we're going to get a different overall system effect than if we just use a passive stretch of the system. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, and I really like the yeah, and I really like the the, the gymnastic um, illustration too because I think that illustrates it very perfectly, and it makes sense with everything else you've been talking in in context of this whole show as well. Just with like the different how the how different tissues are acting under load, and. It's, uh, it's, it's definitely, I mean, like I said, it's, it's an interesting topic. Look at the science, but there's definitely people who are still talking about it. And so I'm glad that you were able to put it under the context of everything that we've been talking about so far. Uh, I, I have two other questions for you. And one of which is kind of a follow-up. You're talking about the isometrics for health. Uh, but what's your take on like a slow, like a slow eccentric, like, um, like maybe loaded or unloaded, but like slow eccentric stuff. Yeah. So the Alfredson protocol, the key to the Alfredson protocol is the slow component. And again, so all you're getting, and if there's beautiful studies out of Copenhagen comparing the Alfredson eccentric protocol to a heavy strength training protocol, there's no difference between the two. Um, and so really what you're seeing is you're seeing the velocity. The key of the Alfredson isn't that it's eccentric because I could do a plyometrics eccentric. You're not going to do that as a health movement for your for your tendon because the velocity is very different. And so really what you're doing is it's the slow isometric component. When they say slow isometric, that's the part, the slow is the part that we're really interested in. So again, you can do a slow concentric, a slow isometric or eccentric, or you can do an isometric. All three seem to be very similar. The reason that we use the isometric is because that's really allowing the most creep to happen within the tendon. And especially when we're looking to change the functionality of the tendon, if we, because most of what we've talked about or all of what we've talked about is when the tendon is healthy. The real problem happens when we get a tendon injury. And because when we get a tendon injury, basically what happens is evolutionarily, the reason that we have these beautiful structures is because we don't have to pass load through the whole tendon. We can shield any injured tendon bit and all the stress or all the load goes around it, like putting a rock into a river. The, the water just goes around the rock, the same way that the load goes around the injury. That's great for not rupturing the tendon. The problem is that if you, if you don't load it, 
the cells don't know which direction to make collagen. And they make collagen in all different directions. And that's what we call a scar. It's a non-directional collagen. And so what you have to do in order for the collagen to reorient and to regenerate the functional tendon, what you have to be able to do is you have to get load through the through that tissue so the cells know, ah, oh, we were supposed to synthesize collagen in this direction. And that's where having the creep is really important because what creep is, is it's all of these collagen molecules relaxing the, the fascicle sliding. But what it does functionally is it's because it, as the load goes down, remember we talked about if I pull on it, the tension goes up within the tendon and then it drops. And it drops so far that it's now, the whole tendon is now weaker than the scar area. And the scar then gets a pull on it because now the, the whole tendon is weaker than the scar. And the result is that you get a little pull on the scar, directionally oriented along the line of force. And now the cells say, ah, that's where the force goes. That's the direction we need to synthesize collagen. And so that's how we use the long isometrics or you're using your slow concentric. But it, the slow concentric and the eccentric aren't giving you as much of a relaxation, aren't giving you as much of a creep because there's movement. And as soon as there's movement, you don't get as much of the creep effect. Yeah, de it kind of desimplifies it and just like adds more components and more forces and more directions to the whole equation. Exactly. Cool. Uh, okay, so last question for you. And I know this could probably be a whole show. So maybe like a 10-minute answer, but just role of nutrition in all this. You've, you've alluded to it before earlier. Um, so role of nutrition for people who are dealing with knees and Achilles and trying to get that better or just optimize their own tendon health and performance. So, so there's definitely a role for nutrition. Um, we know that we know that from the first nutrition study ever performed, the first nutrition study ever performed was in the 1700s by this Scottish doctor who was on a, on a ship and basically all of these sailors were getting scurvy and they were losing their teeth and their scars were coming open, their hair were falling out. And so he did an experiment where he gave, you know, all kinds of really disgusting things to 10 of the sailors and two of them got a lemon and two, two other citrus fruits. And within days, those two that got the lemon and the citrus fruit got better. So there's obviously a vitamin C component to it. We know from some of the studies that we've done that, that the vitamin C, the reason that it works and the reason it's essential is because it, it is a co mandatory cofactor in this prolyl hydroxylase reaction where we're making collagen. And what it does is you can't export collagen from a cell unless you have that reaction. And every time you have that reaction, you consume a molecule of vitamin C. So it's not that we use it and we can reuse it and reuse it and reuse it. It's that every time you use it, it's gone. And so when you wake up in the morning, what, we, what we're finding from some of the studies we're doing is it looks like your vitamin C content in your, in your tissues is really, really low. So that's one component that you have to have. You have to have some sort of a vitamin C component. And the other thing that we've been looking at quite extensively is, is the role of, of collagen or gelatin, um, material, just dietary collagen or dietary gelatin. The difference between them, gelatin is, is basically, um, it's all collagen. It's all coming from skin or bones or, or connective tissues from either you know, cows or pork or chicken or fish. So there's not a vegetarian source of it. That's number one thing. So what we'll find a lot with our athletes is 
oh, you know what? I went vegetarian and now I'm getting all these, these niggles, these tendon injuries, these, these ligament problems. My knees are hurting me more. It's not surprising because they've lost all of their dietary source of, of collagen. The reason that this is potentially interesting is because, you know, collagen is essentially three amino acids. It's glycine, it's proline, and it's lysine to a large degree. They're, the glycine is every single third amino acid. It goes glycine, any amino acid, and then a proline hydroxyproline. So one third of all collagen is glycine. So you, you need a lot of, you need a good amount of glycine. There's a, a, a group out of, um, out of Brazil who've shown that if you supplement with glycine, you can have these great effects. They were giving just goo gobs of glycine. It's not physiologically possible to do that in a human. Um, but so the glycine and the proline are really, really important for building and for building this collagen material. When we get up in the morning, we know that we don't have many of these, these nutrients around. We can break some stuff down, but as, we, as we've talked about before, collagen isn't something that's breaking down all the time in our, in our body. It's a more, one of the more stable proteins in our body, so we're not getting as much turnover there. So we potentially have this need for it. And what we've shown is that as you increase um, the dietary intake of, of either hydrolyzed collagen or gelatin, and the hydrolyzed collagen is just taking the gelatin that you've isolated out of the skin, bones, and all of those things, and you just use an enzyme to cut it up so that it no longer forms a gel. And that just means that it's you can dissolve it in water, you can dissolve it in, in whatever you're looking to do. Um, and so what we've, what we've seen is that when we did the first study on this in humans, we showed that uh, if you give 15 grams of gelatin before you do um, an activity that's going to increase collagen synthesis, what we, what we found is that we got a, a nice robust effect that was probably twice as, twice as much as we got from a placebo control, where we got twice as much of an indicator of collagen synthesis based on having the 15 grams of gelatin before we did our exercise. And the reason we do it before is because tendons and ligaments, unlike muscle, they don't have as much blood supply to them. So the tendon is relatively avascular. The ligaments are completely avascular. They get their nutrients from the fluid that's around them. And so if you need the, the nutrients from the fluid and it's a dense material, you're not going to get in there unless you're actually squeezing out the liquid that's in it. And then as it recovers, so every time we pull on a tendon, the tendon gets longer, but it gets skinnier. So we squeeze out all the water that's in it. That's the, one of the things that causes the creep. And then when we relax, it's going to suck up the liquid from the environment. So if we have the nutrients, the glycine, the proline, and all of those things in the environment, should be able to suck those things up while it brings back the liquid. And that's going to bring in the nutrients that the cells need to make new collagen. So we give those supplements 30, well, 30 minutes to an hour before we're going to do training. And then basically, then you combine that with the loading of the areas that you need to target. So if you're worried about your Achilles, you're going to do, you know, we do six minutes of jump rope. We don't do 20 minutes of jump rope. We do six minutes because you only need a few jumps in order to maximally get the stimulus for your for your tendons to, to adapt. It only takes about five to 10 minutes of activity. And then it takes another eight hours, six to eight hours of rest before those cells will respond again. So ideally we do something uh, in the morning, we do something in the evening. Um, if you're gonna do a long training bout and that's gonna be in the morning, 
I'm going to do my little protective session in the evening without going to give my nutrition. I can do my nutrition before any session that I want to, but if I'm going to do a protected session, that's only for my tendons, my ligaments, my connective tissues. It's going to be a short session and I'm going to do an hour before I'm going to have the, the gelatin or the hydrolyzed collagen. And in that way, what we're trying to do is we're just trying to provide a loading stimulus, this kind of creep stress relaxation loading that we talk about together with the amino acids that are necessary to build new collagen. Now what we're trying to do is we're trying to fix any damage that's occurred within the tendon. I gotcha. That, that's awesome stuff. And so, uh, well, one question with all that. So, so vitamin C and then, then, uh, collagen, um, what, is there like a specific, um, uh, or gelatin you said you're giving these athletes that is there like, uh, is there any guidelines when going out and get, I know like I do like a bone broth collagen, supplement i mean is there any way to is there any guidelines on supplementation no, a lot of them a lot of them it, it doesn't necessarily we don't know that there's a difference between brands we don't know that there's a difference between gelatin and call and hydrolyzed collagen mm -hmm. it does seem like in different people some of them respond really well to gelatin and not as well to hydrolyzed collagen so again maybe some people can absorb it and digest it better in one form or another but we haven't done all the tests necessary to know. We haven't even done the test to say, look, collagen is better than, say, whey protein. Mm -hmm. So we have to do those things. It's still very early days for the collagen nutritional supplementation. There's many more companies touting all of these wonderful mm -hmm. benefits than there is actual studies saying that there are actually any benefits. And so we're trying to we're trying to stay ahead by by doing as many studies on these things as we can. Um, but really what we, what we would do is we would, for a lot of our athletes, they'll take in a gelatin, 15 grams. It's going to be in a, like a glass of orange juice and the gelatin doesn't dissolve in there. They're just going to take mm -hmm. it and they're just going to drink it down. And it's going to taste horrible. I'm sure. People, people do it in the, I, I know people who put the gelatin into milk and stir it in and then they add hot milk and they do it in their, they do it in their morning latte and then they have an orange juice with their breakfast. Now they've got both the collagen and the vitamin C. So people can do it in a lot of different ways. One of the great um, sport nutritionists that, that I've worked with, he was doing it in, um, he would do it at a, in a chocolate uh, dessert. So he would make this really beautiful like mousse that, that had the gelatin in it. And it would, it would be gelatin and hydrolyzed collagen, but it was in this chocolate dessert. You can do it in a lot of different ways. There's beautiful ways to do it. One of the old ways of doing it is just eating steak um, and actually eating the part that's chewy um, because that's where we used to get all of these nutrients. We've become lazy in our food eating as well as everything else. So we don't like to actually have to chew on stuff. Um, you know, one of the, one of my good friends um, who used to be the nutritionist for the English Institute of Sport, Jenny, Jenny Pierce, she used to, she called it her hyena diet which is you eat the bones, you eat the cartilage off the end, you eat all the stuff that we don't eat anymore. And that's, that's where you get it from. And that's a completely natural way to get it. We take it as a supplement because people are reluctant to take in those, those sources anymore. <laughs> I love it. You can almost liken like the people show animals who can really jump high. It's the wild cats, you know? So right. maybe there's something to do with that. I don't know, but uh, and it's a good reminder regardless. Like that's uh. I'm I'll shoot. I'm gonna go after this podcast. I'm gonna go jump. I'm gonna go in the backyard, do some line hops for a few minutes, and drink some orange juice. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's good. 
uh i feel like I had oh yeah last question okay um so it was just a quick little follow-up but so you mentioned like doing this for for health like a, a comp- mm-hmm. companion session for health uh or, or the supplementation or anything like could it also like if i'm perfectly healthy and i'm a sprinter or jumper i just want to jump higher run faster get more out of my tendon stiffness same same kind of effect and benefit or yeah so what you're doing there by the collagen is we think we're increasing collagen synthesis and remember, there's two things that go into stiffness. There's the, there's the collagen content and the organization, but there's also the cross-linking. So if you put it in there, if you are eating it and you're, and you're doing your training, what you're doing is you're combining the two things. You're combining the increase in collagen synthesis with the potential to cross-link what you've made by doing your training for performance. So if I want to take an athlete and I want to combine these things, a perfectly healthy athlete, Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to do before their high quality sessions, before their sprint repeats, before they're, before they're going to get in and do their really high quality work. That's when I'm going to go in and give them the collagen. First thing it's going to do, it's going to target it to the areas that I'm working. It's going to target it to my hamstring. It's going to target to other areas. And then what it's going to also do is it's going to give me the potential to say, okay, now I'm using my loading to give me lots of cross links in those areas where I'm putting those things in because I'm doing the fast movements. So it's combining the two things. If I want to do it for health and robustness, now what I could do is I could do slower movements and target it and, but not be building up the cross links. And that's going to give me the health based component. I can do it for performance. I can do it for health in both situations. You're increasing the robustness of the tissue, but in one situation you're making it, so that you're fixing any injuries and you're and you're making it so that you're not going, as likely to get a muscle pull and the other you're improving performance so the way that we would do it through a season is is we would be alternating these things so early in a season when it's really about getting the volume of sprints or we're getting a volume of whatever loads we're doing now we're going to do some protective movements some slow movements together with the together with the intervention and as we get closer and closer to competition, now what we're going to do is we're going to decrease those and we're going to increase our fast movements. And every individual, because they have different genetics and there's a whole genetic component to tendon injury, which is beautifully done by a friend of mine, George McConey, out of uh, out of out of Cape Town. Now he's in now he's in Botswana, but they had shown beautifully that there's a number of different polymorphisms that predispose you to tendon injury. So if I have two athletes and one of them has a lot of those polymorphisms. Now I need to know, okay, they're going to get injured more easily. I'm going to keep the protective movements later into the season or all the way through the season. This person's never had a muscle pull. I'm not worried or never had a tendon injury. I'm not worried about them. I'm going to keep their, their health-based movements lower and I'm really going to jack up their plyometric load or their max power work as they get closer to, to competition. Oh, it's great stuff to finish on. And just like that spectrum and bandwidth of how to utilize it. Um, just great way to tie things up, Keith. I really appreciate this talk, your time. I just, I think that the, the tendon thing, like, like I mentioned, like, you know, my own project, research project 10 years ago, I've convoluted some stuff. I think it easily can be, but uh, I think that I, you, man, you really did a great job or man, I really learned a lot from everything and how you made sense of everything today. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. No, that's great. I'm glad it was, I'm glad it was understandable.
Thanks for joining us today for another episode. Appreciate you guys being here with us and another gem in the tendon and connective tissue lineup of education. I've, I've been so educated by doing this. So it's amazing to be able to sit down with the world experts and just be able to just be able to put it all together. And, and honestly, er, and ever since I had this conversation with Dr. Barr just a few weeks ago, I've already been implementing these things and they've been tremendously helpful. And I'm following the line of Jake Tura. Jake Tura's done this stuff and he's got tremendous benefits and, and health from it. And I'm sure that you guys are going to get some great things out of it as well. If you did actually, um, shoot, any, any results you guys get from hearing a guest, I, I'd love to hear stories. I'd love to hear emails. So shoot them my way. I'm certainly happy to read them from what you guys are getting from this show. If you enjoy it, be totally stoked if you left us a rating, review, iTunes, Stitcher. And in closing, uh, our sponsor, simplyfaster.com. They've been awesome supporters of this show. Make sure you check out their website, see what they got going on. We'll be back next week with another great guest. Have a good one.